good Wednesday morning, and thank you guys all for tuning in and for subscribing and listening to Dr. John. Today, we're starting things off a little bit differently. John is going to give us kind of a summary of what we're going to talk about today so that you can decide if you want to listen to it or not. Good morning, everyone. Um, I want to talk again. Uh, it comes up all the while in one form or another, but more explicitly on what the philosophers call the ordering of the goods, which is just a, a short way of saying there are many good things in the moral world, but are they all equal? And the answer is no. And so I want to talk about that today. I will begin by contrasting societies that make truth the top moral good and societies that make loyalty the top moral good. You could be thinking now in your work group, in your home, in your church, whatever, which of those two is top? It, that's important. So those of you who know this stuff and have got it all straight and you've got a busy day, well, thank you for saying hello today and on you go. But for the rest of you, let's start just with this simple proposition. Societies all have dominant ideas, which in the end rule the society as a whole. Uh, we need to think about what they are. Now, I usually say, and it, 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 it's an aphorism and it needs unpacking and it, all the usual uh, qualifications, but you can divide the world up into two groups with one question. Do you live in a society dominated by truth or do you live in a society dominated, dominated by loyalty? Now, you stop and think for a moment and it's not easy, is it? Um, only two societies and then only at their best put truth above loyalty. The norm, going all the way back to tribalism, is local loyalties. Now, does this matter? Is it important, in fact? You can have truth under loyalty or truth above loyalty or wherever you want. It's a smorgasbord. No, it isn't. Uh, they do matter. And this one's easy to illustrate. If your society is one in which truth will always beat loyalty, how do you get your job? That's easy, isn't it? You get it by competence. But if your society is one that puts loyalty above truth, how do you get your job? By who you know or how you define yourself. That's not such, such a good idea when you start to think about it. Let's go the step further. If you contrast those two societies, the one that's running on competence, truth, and the one that's running on connections or whatever, which one will be more efficient? There's no question about that. Competence will always beat loyalty uh, because loyalty is always suspect in one way or another. But where truth reigns, you have a society that will make progress. It's not an accident that the two societies that made it for any length of time are Jews and Christians. Muslims made loyalty central from the beginning. I mean, uh, the Quran, uh, as Obama, uh, not Obama, um, got name blocked now for the founder of the Taliban and all the rest. Uh, let's come back in a minute. But he, he wrote that Allah commands us that we are to uh, chase the infidel down and, and kill him if he will not repent and become a Muslim. That's in their founding documents, and loyalty has always been top of the heap in uh, 
in the Muslim world, and not surprisingly, most of their early rulers were assassinated along the way. These things are not unrelated. But where truth trumps loyalty, there's space for people to do things. The incredible inventiveness of the Western world over a very short period has to be explained in some way. Uh, the early 18th century, where in, in Britain people were building things who were not in any way educated, railways, roads, the whole thing took off in a very short time and largely powered by people who had little or no formal education. But the society allowed them to try out their ideas. I mean, now in America, Peter Thiel is well aware, the founder of PayPal and a, a very interesting guy, but he's actually trying to persuade smart, talented people not to go to university. He'll give them money, scholarships, in order to work on an idea that they think can be made practical. And he thinks that's a better way to go. I take his point. George Stevenson, when he built his first commercial uh, railway that worked and made a profit, he was illiterate. He built his first steam engine as an illiterate young man because he'd worked in the, in the pits where there was, they had to have pumps to keep the, the mines dry and he'd help maintain them and all the rest. And he'd thought about them. And he worked out he could make one that would work and he could use it to propel things and move amounts of goods that nobody had conceived of as possible before. No education. He learned to read and write by sending his son to school. And every day when he came home from school, he had to go through the total day's learning with his father. And it was long before his father corrected the minor defect of uh, reading and writing. So think a lot about the way you run your family, truth and loyalty. Think, for instance, when one of your children does something wrong, what's your response? I'm going to leave that hanging. That's the introduction, the, the come on, if you like. And uh, those of you who know where I'm going from here, and some of you are my good friends, and you have busy days, and don't make me an excuse for being lazy. Off you go. But the rest of you, is that okay now that we can proceed? Yes? Okay. Good. Think of, it, think of uh, how you start bringing these ideas into your family's life. The classic example for me would be when a child does something wrong, usually in a minor way, and they know they have, and you ask the question and they own up, what's the next thing you should do? You should honor their truth-telling. Before you get to the minor uh, misdemeanor, whatever it was, say, that's good, you told the truth, that's important, that's character for me. Now, you can then negotiate the punishment because they know they've done wrong, so there needs to be uh, a process whereby normal relationships can uh, be reaffirmed and you negotiate the punishment, usually something quite minor, but they accept it and you hug and relationships are restored. That's an, a, a teaching moment has occurred. I remember one... Sunday many years ago when my children were, well, uh, early teens or uh, that sort of age, the youngest probably under 10. Um, and it was Sunday and my wife and I had a row. Uh, I can't even remember what it was about, neither can she. 
but it's my, I normally say grace. Sally prefers it that way. Um, but I was still angry. I hadn't got over it. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't say grace today. I'm not in an appropriate state to say grace, truthfully. And an untruthful grace is not a grace at all. Nobody ever forgot that meal. It was terrible. Whereas Sunday was normally the best meal of the day, and it went on for a long while, and there was lots of talk. That's important. It's a, a teaching moment that you should always take those opportunities to show where a real belief in God leads you to put truth first. I mean, there's no question in the New Testament that truth comes first over loyalty. Because telling the truth is, in fact, being loyal to Christ. You don't have to worry about that. So think long and hard about it. It's not an accident that the tolerance, that the Muslim world uh, and the pagan world do not make anything that we buy from them. We dug the oil out of the ground in the first place. But that amazing human capacity to make new things and change the quality of everybody's life has been dominantly achieved by the Judeo-Christian world. Now, let's be honest, so you go back a few hundred years and China was leading the way, but they had the same sort of idea uh, locked into what is called the Tao. Lewis used it in the one device I don't think worked too well for him, but in it, what I think of as his best book, um, The Abolition of Man, uh, he uses the, the Chinese uh, Taoist view uh, of uh, truth uh, as a way to try and get people to think about truth without getting too angry about it before you start. So The Abolition of Man is an absolutely tremendous book uh, for you to get your head around these ideas. At the end of, towards the end of the first chapter, uh, I'm doing, memorizing this, uh, drawing on memory for this, but Lewis says this, something like this. He says, for the wise men of old, because Lewis is looking at a world that's already putting loyalty above truth in various ways. So he says, for the wise men of old, the cardinal, the first problem of human life is how to conform your soul to objective reality. That, of course, is God. And this is an exercise in truth-telling. And the solution? Wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. You don't hear those words talked about very much at all in our society. Wisdom doesn't appear in the university anymore. Nobody says, I can ask any group of students, have you ever gone home from class saying I'm wiser than I was this morning? And they laugh. It's a very sad laugh. That's where we're at. And Lewis goes on. For the modern world, the cardinal problem of human life is about how to conform reality to our desires. And the solution is technique, technology. And that is frighteningly true. He got it right, didn't he? He said, now we are surprised when we find traitors in our midst having made fun of the things that made the idea of traitor real. We have a whole bunches of academics in the Western world 
who seem to be motivated by a hatred of their own history. Nobody's history is perfect, but if you were to write them all out, uh, we wouldn't be doing badly overall, certainly in the last little while. Pagan societies have a certain form of history, largely oral, because they didn't get very far in anything else, in many cases. Uh, but what we should do, we should be taking statues down. You can put explanatory notes underneath about this is what can happen when you lose your way and still acknowledge what they got right. And I think the Hungarians were brilliant when they finally got rid of the communists. Instead of destroying all the statues of Lenin and Marx, they decided to put them all together in one place and put barbed wire around them and let the pigeons defecate on them all. They thought that would be an appropriate way to remember their history. When you get rid of history, it doesn't mean that what, what happened didn't happen and that its consequences aren't around. Of course they don't go away on that basis. That's what's happening here. Identity politics is another version of loyalty over truth. But you don't help anyone in the long run by making them look for reasons for victimhood to try and claim some sort of uh, income that they didn't earn. What's needed in the lower classes of all societies is opportunities to get to a better position. I'm a good example of that. Um, First person in my family to go to university and all the rest of it. That's the way to go forward. Yeah, I, I was the beneficiary of a a very, very modest form of affirmative action, but it wasn't based on something of no real significance like race. It was based on intelligence, which we can measure reasonably well. And every society needs to make sure that they use the intelligence that God has put into their society well, whether you be male, female, black, white, pink, or whatever, handicapped or not, male or female. They don't matter. What you want to make sure of is that you use people's abilities in a way that benefits everyone, including them. Make the opportunities available. So, the ordering of the goods is not a small issue. And when we come up, we jump in at something like critical race theory and start at that point. No, no, don't do that. You have to go much further back and say, okay, what would you need to believe to accept that kind of story? And is it true? Now, that's when you've got them in quite a difficult position because now they're going to have to say, yes, it is true if they want it to go on, but then at the same time to say they don't really believe there's any such thing called truth. We are in really deep trouble because we're incoherent. So... Our job as people who care about their society is to show our society that that it's incoherent and fix it. We all act on the basis of faith. We we behave as though something is true. We have no option. I was used the example of imagining an alien arriving from Mars and looking at our society, and very quickly. Let's say that he can really see what's going on uh, morally as well. He would rapidly divide us into people who believe that we are created, that 
at the beginning of everything, there's a God. And we have another group of people who don't even want to think about that. They just want to behave as though there is no God and there's no consequence. Now, one of those two is true, and the other is false. And the only way we have of looking at it and making a decision uh, from a human point of view is by looking at the outcomes. Now, they only want outcomes in terms of defining what they want to get, and it has to, be, it has to come by some means. Instead of looking at the question, okay, if, if I believe in a God who is going to judge me after death, is that going to make me a better or worse physician? Well, one thing, for instance, is if that is the case, I'm going to be better logically, not necessarily in fact, but logically. The logic of that would propel me to be concerned about how I treat you because God is going to ask me about it. I'm not going to kill you because that undermines medicine as a whole. We should have got that right, but we didn't. And we're going to pay for that and eventually, hopefully, backtrack and get it right again. But the old picture of the the GP praying by the side of the, the child's bed who's dying of a fever because he had no treatment. He was trusted because of who he was, what he knew, and that he would do his best. And nobody could ask more, they would say. That's one world. But the other one, you start looking around for people who could do things and saying, you've got to do them for me without any discussion of whether they ought to be done. Because a world without transcendence has increasingly, all over the place you're seeing this popping up in one way or another, is a world without morality. Now the so-called enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, the, the Hobbes and Hume and all that crowd, um, Grotius onwards, they, they wanted a new rational world but a morally rational world doesn't come. Uh, it's not possible, as, we're, as we can now see. And, of course, it was worked out slowly, uh, and they had to make a distinction between a rationality that aped science as it had bega uh, begun to take off. Uh, experimental science is an amazing phenomenon. I maintain you can't rationally do it if you don't believe there's order underneath the surface chaos of life. Uh, and that is by no means uh, obvious at first sight. Uh, it's a gift to see it that way. Not everyone does, and those who don't have problems, and those who do have less problems in many, many of the most important ways. Uh, not least of all, how to keep science in its place. Science began because the church, in its wisdom, decided that Early science looked as though it might be dangerous to the faith of the humble poor. So temporarily, Aristotle's deductive logic was banned, and they were forced into inductive logic, which is, of course, the basis of an experiment. What you do when you do an experiment, you say some big questions out there, but I can't answer them. But I'm curious about nature. So I can do things that are within my range of abilities and see where it leads experiments. They began, first experiments, 14th century, Merton College, Oxford. Uh, they, in effect, drew a graph without knowing that they'd done it. But they began to move science from a speculative, qualitative thing. I mean, the great minds of the Greeks didn't begin with physical facts. They began with 
their speculations. And there are people who want to try and pretend that we still do the same, but we don't. We need grist for the mill. And once you start doing experiments, any experimental scientist will tell you the same thing. You get one experiment right in that it produces some interesting results, but more importantly, it produces about 10 other experiments that you hadn't thought of before. Inductive reasoning and experimentation, one thing leads to another. I used to carry a little black book in the early days of my scientific career when I worried about what I would do next. And then I realized uh, my little black book, which I lost on an airplane somewhere, uh, was not necessary because within a few months of starting and certainly within a few years, I had far more questions than I would ever have time to get around to. That's the way it works. Uh, and as the... Uh, Robert Fogel puts it, the art form of life is knowing where to go next. It's when you do the right experiment at the right time. I always made it a principle that I wanted to do something that nobody else was doing so that I didn't have any competition. And when I'd made progress, which I was fortunate enough to do, as soon as the competition started catching up with me, I moved to something else because uh, I don't want to work 80 hours a week. I think it's uncivilized. It's bad for families. It's bad for everybody. And I think the fact that I'm still giving this lecture now, and amazingly, you guys are coming and listening to me, um, and I had my 83rd birthday yesterday. So uh, that's not bad, is it? Uh, it's 20 years longer than most people manage, but that's, somebody told me the other day, the odds are I'll make it to 90. We'll see. Uh, I hope not, in a way. I'm quite happy at the thought of heaven. But what I'm pointing out is once you start with truth and then you continue to make that central, you don't really have any problems of where you go next because you speak the truth and, okay, that means you're not going to do certain things. Because let me just read to you why. Uh, this book, Science and the Good, by James Davidson Hunter and Paul Nedeliski, but Science and the Good. The tragic quest for the foundations of morality is what it's about. It hasn't, it was published a few years ago now, and it didn't get the amount of notice that I think it should have done, but that's because it was undermining the, uh, the liberal elites and what they want. Um, towards the end of the book, around page 201, and he's, he has a subheading, a, a moral science unreflective about history, culture, and the political economy is what they want. One challenge to the new moral science is the effective absence of any working awareness of, of or engagement with history, culture, and political economy. Uh, they want it to sort of come magically out of the undergrowth. And it's not going to happen. And uh, he does uh, a very nice account of what it's like to be in uh, a scientific career. He's not, he's not kind about it, but he's also truthful. He points out that science also has its little loyalty-driven cliques. Uh, in the end, you find out how it was done, but it, does, it also means that certain things are not worth trying because you're not going to get funded. Uh, people have to change the names on their doors, so to speak, not because they're going to change what they do, but because uh, the political powers, uh, the people who have the privilege and the money, uh, have to be stroked 
you have to bend the knee to Darwin in the first paragraph of your uh, grant application, and having done that, all was well. Uh, that's coming to an end now, and uh, I discovered the uh, the bending of the knee could be ironic quite easily, um, leaving me, so to speak, undeclared. Um, but he says these. There was a time, he says, when theology claimed a privileged authority. Its claims to truth were embedded within institutions that could protect the power and advantage of the people making those claims. Uh, to contradict its assertions or challenge its authority was an act of transgression that nearly always met with an act of social control orientated towards both punishing the transgressor and rebuilding the solidarity and authority of the group in power. Sometimes the social controls were symbolic, a declaration of heresy, for instance. Other times it was physical, all the way up to being tied to a stake and burnt alive. This is what all establishments do, all power groups. Inside established authority, there is little reflection. There is only truth and error, right and wrong, insider and outsider, defined by the society. However, however we have evolved as a species, we have not outgrown our requirement to draw boundaries and police them nor have we evolved beyond our urge to suppress dissent and oppress dissidents from our circles, even in the communities that define themselves as enlightened, open, and liberated. We humans can't help ourselves. The classic example over recent years was the absolutely egregious way in which people, including someone, someone like Stephen Pinker, savaged Nagel, who was a, is a good philosopher, but he came to the conclusion like other philosophers, there had to be a mind behind the cosmos, and that was unacceptable a few years back. Now, with the return of the God hypothesis in various ways, people are uncomfortable about attacking it in quite the way they used to. All this stemming from the first step away from the reality that, as Judeo-Christian people, we agree was the start. I mean, the earlier, we've talked quite a lot about Cass in the recent past and his account of God's dealing with human nature uh, through Genesis. But then we come to the critical formation of a society. Um, that's what Deuteronomy is about, the world's greatest commencement address. And it's very interesting uh, how little people read Deuteronomy and how little they think about it. Um, the first three chapters or so are, are history of for the Jews, a reminder which we can move over quickly. But then Moses says to the children of Israel, you have been given a law by God which is greater than any other law the world has seen. And he is politically incorrect in that he says they will acknowledge that fact. So the start of nation building is rooted in the ten divine intolerances, which is the way I like to make people think about it, because they think intolerance is uniformly bad. But you can rewrite the ten foundational ideas of the Jewish state, which has lasted so long despite Jewish nation, all the vicissitudes they've had. It's the ten things God will not tolerate. 
And in each case, of course, the telling of the, the giving of the law in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5 is preceded by a very important sentence. And when you ask Christians, of course, non-Christians have absolutely no idea about this, but most Christians don't either. When I ask the question, tell me, what is the sentence that introduces the giving of the law in both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5? And I get no answer. The answer is this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. The law in the Bible is introduced by grace. They couldn't get out of Egypt on their own. It was impossible. They needed God to do it. And he did. So the foundational statement that they have in their mind is what God did. Our job as Christians is very simple. Jesus says, go and tell what I've done for you. Every day you should have some opportunity to tell somebody what Jesus did for you. In ordinary conversation, you don't have to manipulate it or anything like that. I recently had the most remarkable flight to Mobile in, in Alabama for a conference and and given all the rules, you know, standing in acute, clear American customs in Toronto you know, uh, for an hour, uh, you have to get to the airport early. So they were sitting down there, and then this uh, three flights, you know. By the time I got there, I'd had half a dozen talks of at least half an hour in each case, and in each case about serious things because on a plane and an airport, it, it's easy, isn't it? But, if you're standing around for a while and you want to talk to somebody, where are you going, where are you coming from, what do you do? Those are the usual opening questions. And when they ask me what I do, I say, well, I talk about ethics, culture, faith, and public policy and how we might get them all on the same page because if we don't, we're going to fracture and fall apart. And everybody's interested at the moment because the kids are frightened of they have real scares about there not being a world to live in very shortly. The people who've done this have got a huge guilt burden coming their way when they realize what they've done. And if, if your children are in that state, you need to ask them, are you frightened about the future? And when they say they are, I say, well, now, now you've got a Christian way to do that and tell them, no, God knows what he's doing and he will look after us in it. And he doesn't promise us a rose garden here, and he doesn't say it will be easy, and he doesn't say we'll get everything right, and it'll all be happy clappy. But he does say, I'll be with you. Uh, and then you can take them. Uh, just say, Happer at Princeton, uh, uh, a chemist, brilliant guy. You find him on YouTube. Uh, there's another one from MIT whose name I've forgotten in a moment. But they've spent their lives thinking about weather and, and all the rest. And they say, look, yeah, we're in a period of uh, change at the moment, but it's nothing compared to what has happened previously. The ups and downs have always been there. I see in today's news some astute politician is trying to blame the cyclone in New Zealand on climate change. Well, man-induced, of course, of course. Climate variation has been with us forever. If you want some really exciting graphs in terms of thinking about what they mean, you go and look at the temperature changes on the surface of the Earth since it settled down a few uh, billion years ago. Um, it's an, a remarkable graph. 
but all these Bjorn Lomberg in, in, in Scandinavia, they're all saying the same thing. Yeah, there's more movement than there's been for a while, but there was a, a medieval warm period. There was also a late medieval cold period. Ups and downs like that are genuine and real. Uh, certainly, it's a lot, it was a lot warmer in the past than it is now. Uh, the medieval warm period, when they're growing uh, vines and making wine in Newcastle and northern England, tells you enough, doesn't it? So it's up and down, but we don't. We buy into people without asking, what do you know about what you're talking about? The very fact that that an out that a someone disturbed teenager can become saint, uh, almost saintly in in uh, the eyes of many of the kids, Greta. Um, does she know at her age? Nothing. She's talking about her feelings and whatever has been given to her by other people. That's where we've got to. We've lost our way. So, back to what God said. He said, the first thing you have, you, I am the Lord your God. The first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. If it's in the beginning, no God, we have no hope. Because we... And it can't possibly be true because all along the way we have honored people who did the very un-Darwinian thing of sacrificing their lives for other people. That doesn't make any sense in a Darwinian world. Lying and cheating, they do. Not doing that, that's a different matter. So that's why I wish that, that, that families all over the world were, were teaching their children these things because you get these basics in place the world's a different place for you. And of course, from the Christian point of view, uh, the bottom line when we bear witness to what has been done in our lives is precisely that, what has been done in our lives. Uh, my family have been so blessed in ways that nobody could have predicted. Uh, we've had such an incredibly interesting life. Some fairly frightening moments, but uh, never any real fear because that was imprinted in very early on that you don't have to worry about these things. In one of the most, looking back, one of the most important things that happened in my working class home, a little church would invite missionaries every now and again. My mother was usually at the basis of that. So one of the sets of missionaries who came were missionaries who spent their whole lives from 20s to 60 when they were forced to come home because of the uh, they were more of a burden in the middle of a civil war than they were helpful. But they had lived in Africa for most of their life without an income. They prayed for three hours every day. Not surprisingly, that's what you do when you have no income. And God had looked after them. And they had amazing stories to tell, which for a little boy, I suppose, I'd be eight on when I first met them. Uh, would be about that age, I think. And last met them uh, after I was married. And they had prayed for me every day during that period. But more importantly, their witness in a very simple way, they were ordinary folk. Uh, but they'd had an extraordinary life based on faith. And that has to be accounted for, because it can be repeated time and time and time and time again. But there's a long history. Nowadays, we don't even read missionary biographies, so those stories are getting lost, which is very sad indeed. 
So, my bottom line, think about the ordering of the goods. Yes, there are all sorts of good things. Tolerance is useful. It's not even a virtue. You tolerate a little bit of cheating, a little bit of lying, a little bit of, the, a little bit of that. The only way you can use tolerance as a virtue when you say he has great tolerance for pain or something like that. No, tolerance is the oil to make the, the world go round. But the, the real machinery of the world is ideas of truth and justice and honor and love. Um, those are the things that are fundamental. And if we don't have agreement about what the core issues are, we are bound to fall apart. And I think the anxiety of many of the young is they feel they're falling apart. And when they go to church, they don't get much help in that direction because church has degenerated into not much more than the social club in many places. They certainly, uh, the failure to read the Old Testament anymore and the failure to know the Psalms anymore is a good example of decay. The structure of uh, life that was there without thinking about it. I've talked about tacit knowledge already and it'll come up again in the future, but all the things we caught rather than learned. Now, with our reductionistic world, an exact, a degree that you get from the university contains no wisdom and no real knowledge because you get marks by memorizing and dumping while professors pour on you what their current nostrums are without any historical or cultural basis to what they're saying. There's no philosophy of medicine taught in medicine. There's no philosophy of justice taught in law. There's no philosophy of science taught in science to any significant extent. You have to go looking in special places to do that. So in our families, we've got a great deal to think about. If you want to think about it more, I mean, you can go to my website and then go to Augustine College's website, augustinecollege.org, because we started that project 20 plus years, 25 years plus, uh, precisely because we had seen that students were coming to university, even from Bible colleges, and departing a little while later, having lost their mind, their faith, and their virginity in random order. That's not a good outcome. Um, we need, we've got to do something about it. Um, people say yes, 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 and do nothing at all. Um, I think we need something like Augustine College in every university uh, town on the continent. You only need four or five people who share two things, uh, a belief in the ancient creeds and a real love of learning, uh, and then they must love the pupils too. Uh, that combination leads to an educational environment that is quite different. It's not a memorize and dump environment. It's a laying foundations environment. So if you've got anyone in your family who's currently looking very dangerously like falling into the escapism of drugs and mindless sex and the rest at university, raid the piggy bank and send them to us or a like institution. Um, there are many. Peter Kraft once a year writes an article somewhere uh, saying which institutions he actually trusts and there are many. But we're certainly one and I want to see something like that happen in every city on the continent. But we need some of the younger generation. I'm too old to do that, but I'd love to give it a push in the right direction. But it's going to need the help of some big foundation to do it. So think about how we're going to save the minds of our children. And step one is putting truth first 
above loyalty. Uh, racism is a classic example of that. Thank God uh, for the, the black scholars who are coming out and saying, look, this is nonsense. Don't go there. I mean, we all have genes for black skin. It's just that they're expressed more effectively in one group than another. It's not as though it's unique to them. We all have melanocytes. It's just a question of how many you have. Um, and they can be switched on occasionally, which creates some very interesting situations. But uh, the bottom line is uh, identity politics, which is what's dominating us, is loyalty above truth. The truth is we must do the best we can with what we've got and help one another as far as possible. Uh, making somebody into a victim is not helping them at all. Giving them opportunities to grow out of victimhood, that's helping them. So the Lord be with you. Have a good week. Thank you, Dr. John, and thank you guys all for listening. If you guys enjoyed this, please subscribe, share it with a friend. And if you have a question for Dr. John that you want him to answer, you can ask that question at www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask. Thank you guys, and we'll see you all next week. Mm-hmm.